Welcome back to another installment of Hope for the Broken Leader. I'm Paul Alexander, uh, host of the podcast, president of Hope International University, and um, have been very pleased by the response to um, the podcast thus far, so I'm getting good feedback on it. Uh, and waited on this topic uh, until we were um, several sessions and, and topics into the podcast before I entered into what is a very sensitive topic uh, for Christian leaders, and that is affairs, marital fidelity, and marital infidelity. And I've entitled this The Affair Before the Affair. And here's where my training as a marriage and family therapist comes into very direct play because of my clinical experience working with couples, especially early in my career, dealing with infidelity on the part of the husband or the wife, and in some cases, the husband and the wife. It is my belief that uh, this is one of the most under-discussed topics in Christian leadership, uh, one of the least um, understood, uh, and certainly under-communicated. It's also my belief, my bias, that Christian leaders are especially vulnerable and susceptible because of uh, this silence, this undercommunication, as well as because of the pedestal that Christian leaders often find themselves working from and on top of uh, that sets them up, up for problems. I know for those of you in ministry settings, uh, you know that when you have a, a young youth pastor, uh, that one of the common things that we see with a young pastor is people end up with crushes on um, that church staff member. We, we watch them carefully because we want to make sure that they are understanding what's going on and that we're all very careful about it. But sometimes as we as Christian leaders get older, people are watching us less diligently and we're watching ourselves less diligently. So my heart for today's topic is that you or someone you know could benefit from some of the insights, some of the suggestions, and some of the ideas that I'll present. So I also believe that not all Christian leaders are affair prone. Um, I think there are a good number, I don't have a statistic, but I think there are a good number of Christian leaders um, that have a strong hedge biblical phrase, a strong hedge around their heart, around their fidelity, around their attention, um, and are at very, very low risk. But I do believe not any person I have ever known is 100% risk-free. We are all human, uh, and we have all been, at one time or another, at least small a attracted to the attention of someone else, if not our own attention toward someone else, even if it's fairly innocuous. So let me go through um, some additional reasons why I think that Christian leaders may be more prone or are especially prone to the issue. Um, one is isolation. I've mentioned that before when we talked about uh, anxiety and depression, that your work as a Christian leader, certainly as a pastor, is often one of loneliness. Um, in your office a lot, often without peers that you can talk to and talk through things with. And this is a topic that would be rare for Christian leaders to go to their board or their elders or their trustees and say, hey, by the way, uh, I think someone is attracted to me or I think I'm attracted to someone. That is a rare conversation because it is a dangerous one, you know, personally, professionally, politically. Um, it's a threatening conversation. 
Another reason that uh, Christian leaders are at risk is because of the adoration headed their direction. So um, going back to the youth pastor example, mostly young men in our movement, uh, the Christian church and independent Christian church and churches of Christ, it's usually young men uh, in ministry and it's usually younger girls who adore this older um, good-looking, charismatic, um, highly effective communicator, and it's easy to develop a crush on that because of this pedestal, because of this power imbalance, because of this natural big brother or even dad-like figure um, that the person is drawn to. But certainly senior pastors and college presidents and nonprofit presidents as well Many times we take our own needs, wants, desires, and missing parts of us and join them as if lock and key, as in puzzle fitting together with the people that we admire, thinking that if we were only closer to them, we would be more full, we would be more complete. Another reason that uh, we are susceptible as leaders is because we're all at least a little bit narcissistic. Now, hopefully it's a small N narcissist, not a capital N narcissistic. You've heard me mention that on a couple of uh, previous podcasts. There is something in the psych literature called healthy narcissism. I'm not sure that's something I completely agree with, but we're all a little self-focused or we wouldn't continue to exist, right? But there's a continuum from the tiniest bit of narcissism to full-blown narcissistic personality disorder and I'll leave it to you to figure out where you are on that spectrum. I certainly know where I think I am on that spectrum. I'm not going to tell you where I think I am, but I'm on there. right? And, and narcissism needs to be fed, and it's often fed by adoring characters. So those um, dynamics, those feelings, uh, those impressions can often become sexualized or romanticized. Uh, and provide a lot of fuel for the ego of the person who's being adored or appreciated or fill in the blank. Another reason that leaders are susceptible is boredom. Um, I was talking not long ago to a friend of mine who's a good theologian and we were talking about David's fall with Bathsheba and you know I was talking about the initial attraction and I was making a case for good old-fashioned lust And he made a pretty good case for boredom, that David was bored uh, one late afternoon, early evening, um, possibly because he had slept in all day and was now feeling groggy or restless, but maybe he was just up on the roof because he was bored. I don't know, but I I do know that isolation and boredom can contribute to finding something that is less boring, and certainly attraction feels uh, less boring. And then obviously, um, least and not last at all, would be spiritual warfare. I used to golf with a guy who would talk frequently about uh, the issue of spiritual warfare. And he said of pastors, he was not a pastor, uh, he said of pastors, he goes, I think that Satan works overtime on the issue of sex and money for pastors. Those, those temptations, because if Satan can check off, got that guy, he takes care of hundreds, if not thousands, of others because of the disillusionment. Um, his name is Eric, and I, I think Eric is right. I, I think that there is probably extra spiritual warfare and higher levels of temptation for Christian leaders because 
it is such a black eye on the church, the organization, the community, the fellowship, the college, the, whatever it is. Um, if the leader falls, um, and usually we fall for money, sex, or power, to use a Richard Foster title from 30 or more years ago. Um, it's a great book. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to, to take a look at Foster's book, talking about the three most common traps for us as Christians and Christian leaders. But today I really want to focus on this relational and sexual part of the environment, the climate, uh, the landscape that we're in. And I want to talk about my um, experiences as a clinician uh, in my development of a developmental model and a um, fairly intricate model of the anatomy of an affair that it, you'll not find ever in any research paper or textbook. I taught this to my students for the many, many years I taught marriage and family therapy. And I'll tell you the genesis of this model. It was a backwards look at my work with dozens and dozens of couples, almost all of whom were Christians and or Christian leaders whose marriages had been rocked by one person in the marriage having an affair or both. Um, some pastors, some just lay leaders, but all committed believers who came to me to try to see if their uh, marriage could be solved and resolved. If, if there could be a reunification and a rebuilding of trust. And I thought about that after I had done several dozens of those couples, I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull all these cases, I'm gonna shut myself in a room, and I'm gonna begin to ask the research question, what are the common threads? What are the common modalities? What are the common antecedents that led to the cheating? And as you would expect, the cheating begins long before the cheating. And that's why the title, The Affair Before the Affair. Long before there is sexual involvement, there is some other kind of involvement. So I have a 13-part, a 13-step uh, part of this chronological model. It's actually circular. Um, this, this model that I have assembled based on my own observations and conversations with dozens, dozens, dozens and dozens of couples over the years. We'll put them up on the screen one by one. You may have to stop and listen to some of these again. Some go through quickly, some will go through a little more slowly. But what I want you to notice as I take you through the 13 steps is how many steps deep we are into the model of the anatomy of an affair before there's ever any sexual contact. So here we go. Uh, stage number one, relational disengagement, whether the couple has been married a year or 40 years. The number one primary antecedent, the, the contextual scene and environment before anything goes off the rails is that there's distance and distancing between husband and wife. There is a gap that used to not be there. Whether that gap occurred quickly or slowly, most often slowly, there is some emotional disengagement. Almost at the same time, but I would argue right after step one is step two, which is disillusionment. Many of us would recognize that in the first year or two that we were married that we began to have a less idealized view of marriage than we did prior to marriage when we realized that we actually married, uh, wait for it, a human. And our spouse realizes that they married 
a human. And the things that we could ignore easily when we were dating and engaged, now uh, there's no escape because you're living together in the same, often, one-plugger. To me, a one-plugger is an apartment that is so small, you can vacuum the whole thing by just plugging in your vacuum one time, right? So you go from this idealized, fun, less secure kind of engagement to now we're married, and you're not quite as fun as the brochure, uh, and I'm not quite as fun as my brochure that we both loved while we were dating and engaged, and now I'm with a person that does things they didn't tell me they were gonna do. Whether it's around time, energy, money, cleanliness, temperature, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, and they certainly didn't tell me about the crazy relative that's gonna be at every celebration from now till the end of time. So there's this disengagement and there's this period of disillusionment. Now most healthy couples resolve um, disillusionment within a period of months, if not a few years. Other people who are more affair-prone affair um, can stay in that disengaged, disillusioned place for years and years and years. And the longer you stay there, the more at risk you are. Number three, again, occurring almost simultaneously, but number three would be emotional distance. And let me give you one of the tried and true tests for emotional distance. This is a really good hack if you're wondering. A really good indicator that there is emotional distance if couples share important things from their life, not with their spouse, but with a friend or coworker. When I hear couples say things in a social setting to one another like, oh, I don't know if I told you or not, but XYZ story, and the spouse says, no, you didn't tell me. And I, to me, that is a, that, that is a symbol. It's a loud gong. It's, it's a clanging symbol that something's amiss. If I'm not sharing the most important, the most salient, uh, the most vital information with my wife, with Leslie, but I am sharing it with a coworker and a friend um, and doing that regularly with them and not my wife, that's not good. It's not healthy. It's, it's not helpful. So emotional distance as characterized by feeling alone when you're with the person as characterized by not having heart to hearts with them and not sharing important news, right? So that's one, two, and three. Number four, interest in or by another person. Now, I, I don't have a perfect way of languaging this out. And I have for years been trying to convince women that men absolutely do know when someone is interested in them because women often let men off the hook by saying, well, you know, he doesn't really know when someone's interested in him. Guess what? 100% men know when someone is interested in them. Now, maybe not a 19-year-old man, but a 29, 39, 49-year-old man knows if a woman is interested in him. So uh, my friends uh, who are wives, um, men aren't stupid. They may not know a degree. They may not recognize every tell. Uh, but men do know when there's a level of interest. And certainly, I believe, I know it's a gender stereotype, but I believe that women um, always know if a man is interested in them. So if you're thinking, well, I'm not sure I know or not, so let me ask you a question. Look at time, energy, money, intimacy, 
and stories that are reserved just for you or that you reserve just for another? Are you starting to carve out time, create space, energy, adoration, inside jokes that are building with someone other than your spouse? So that you can sense this interest beginning to build where suddenly they become interested in the things that you're interested in and they find ways to be in your life a bit more. Which goes into the fifth stage, which I call, it's not a very great term, uh, but it is what I think it is, and that is friendship plus. Friendship plus means you are now sharing information with this quote unquote friend that you're not sharing with anyone else. And you're finding ways to spend extra time with your new quote unquote friend and you and I both know that deep down, you know in your heart, in the truth of your soul, that it's not really just like other friendships. It is a friendship plus. Now, does that mean that there are active sexual thoughts going on here? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe even probably not. But we have now been preparing the ground for a really problematic planting of serious attraction and temptation. When we've gone from any other friend to a more special friend, more time together, uniquely shared information and things that are reserved just for this friend, and all in the absence of the same kinds of things happening with our spouse. If there is a drought at home, but fertile planting, watering and harvesting going on in the friendships elsewhere, we have a fundamental problem. So this podcast requires each of us to be looking at that. Is, am I sharing information? Am I finding and creating opportunities to have these really cool, fun, meaningful times with someone else, but not my spouse? Am I getting more juice from it emotionally, spiritually, psychologically? Now, here's a side road. I think sometimes we forget just how exciting and thrilling it is when we are 13 to 17 to have our first crush. I, I think back to the first serious crush I ever had. I was pretty sure I was going to marry that girl. <laughs> I was 16. And I, I'd, I'd worked it all out. I was going to marry her. I felt feelings like I'd never felt before in my life. Now, uh, I was crazy. But the intensity of those feelings and what it did in my heart and my mind and what we know later is what was also going on in my brain is a cacophony of hormonal and neural activity that is pretty exciting and also kind of addictive. Um, the dopamine pathways, the feeling, the rush of the chase, of being liked, of liking, um, there's nothing like it. And I think sometimes people give themselves permission to not think about how ridiculous it is that this rush you're having of an initial attraction to someone is anything more than a crush just like it was when you were 15 or 16. That it's somehow uniquely more special and, and meaningful. It's really not. It's the same kind of body and brain activity we had when we were 13, 17, or 19. And it's just as reliable meaning not very reliable. I'll come back to that later. 
So we have interest in or by another. We have friendship plus, and we have confidant. Um, the, to me, this is one of those, uh, you know, you, you can second guess me on some of the other steps, but this one, I, I think I'll win this argument every time. If you're confiding, especially about your personal relationships with somebody other than your spouse, you are in grave danger. Especially if you're talking to someone other than your spouse about your spouse. So if I, as, as a man and a male leader, I'm talking to any other woman in the world about frustrating feelings I might be having with my wife, I, I have just now set the stage for really troubling, problematic, and dangerous behavior on, for me. Right, that I have set up a perfect working laboratory for a soon-to-occur disaster. Confidence of heart issues is meant for the confines of marriage. That's it. And if you can't have it there, then that's when you need to talk to a safe, qualified pastor or a safe, qualified Christian therapist because we have got a red line situation going on. All the alarm bells are going on. If I can no longer confide, and my spouse, and I'm choosing to confide in the life and heart of another, I have created some extraordinarily dangerous situations. Followed by confidant would be flirting. And um, I'm not very good at knowing what flirting looks like all the time. Um, I do believe some people are better at picking that up than others. It has been my experience with my wife and my daughter that they are very good at observing people from a distance and telling me if they're flirting or not. I kind of get it. I'm probably 60 to 70 percent um, accurate. Uh, my wife and daughter are, I would say, 95 percent accurate. Regardless of that, I would say this. You know if you are flirting or not. You know. If there is a, um, a gleam in your eye, if there is a dance in your heart, if there is a quickening of your pulse, if, you, if you're buying special little gifts that you would never buy anyone else, if you're finding ways to be more attractive in the eyes of this person, what you wear, what you buy to wear, I don't care what it is. It could be something as simple as a touch on the shoulder. You know if you're flirting. So what are you going to do about that? And we'll talk about that more. Now, this last couple, confidant and flirting, are headed up at a very steep angle to the next step, uh, which is pre-affair secrecy, especially sharing meals together. Um, there's some literature that suggests that this idea of sharing meals together is one of the most problematic and powerful warning signs, and I agree with that. Um, there is something extra special that happens when we break bread together. Uh, Jesus knew it, and, and we see some of the most sacred moments in Scripture around a communion table or um, a fire pit where people are sharing a, a simple meal together, the, the closeness of fellowship that happens in a house over a meal, or the driving five extra miles out of the way so that you and your, um, you know, Liberty gibbet friend can have a meal together. Um, you know what I mean. And the checking when you're at the restaurant of looking around to make sure that 
you don't necessarily know anyone in this restaurant. There is something about the intimacy of staring at each other across a table and a basket of breadsticks, whatever it is, that we've now begun to create a culture of secret keeping. Let's not tell anybody that we have lunch together all the time. Let's not tell each other that when we get together, we talk about really important and intimate details. Be they spiritually, emotional, romantic, financial, doesn't matter. Um, you're beginning to create spaces for uh, the secret to grow and to build and for your attachment and affection to begin to become more profoundly rooted in the time spent with that other person. So flirting then pre-affair, secrecy and sharing meals. Now, we are eight of the eight steps into a 13 step model before we ever get to any kind of sexual involvement. Once we have gone through these initial stages, at some point, we've now crossed the line. We've been crossing little lines. Now we cross the line into some kind of physical affection that ultimately leads to sexual involvement. Touching, flirting, holding hands under the table, kicking each other's feet under the table at a meeting. Um, meeting up together at a park, and on and on and on. Um, one couple that that still breaks my heart um, because they were undone by an affair. Um, there were some big warning signs, and there there were several behaviors going on right just before the sexual line had been crossed. Um, and I just listed several of them, but that extra time together, enough time together where people go, does that seem normal? Does that seem healthy? Um, probably isn't, right? So finally, there's this sexual involvement. And that can range from, range from single, one-time, um, impulse-oriented, um, alcohol-related to many, many, many years of sexual involvement. But what I can tell you is this. The longer the sexual involvement lasts, the longer affair recovery will take. It's that simple. Uh, you don't get over a two-year affair in two months. Um, I had one of my supervisors one time say that it is month for month, year for year. So if there's a five-year affair, he said, because my clients had had, uh, the husband had had a five-year affair, he said, you know, your couple's probably looking at a four to six year recovery time. And I thought he was ridiculous. And when he was not wrong, <laughs> I wanted to call him up and say, you nailed that one. The longer we betray trust, the longer it takes to rebuild trust. So sexual involvement, again, can be one day, one week, one month, or, or one decade. But I will tell you, every second that it goes on, more trust, fundamental trust between husband and wife is decimated. Along with the sexual involvement is the sustained secrecy and a walling off, a complete walling off of your spouse emotionally, spiritually, and often, but not always, often physically. So it makes sense. God intended us to be that intimate with a person not persons. So if you're now involved, all of you, every bit of you with someone else, there isn't enough space for your spouse. And so the data indicates that 
men usually, sometimes women, will overcompensate because they know deep down they're not committed to two places. They know they're committed one, the person they're having the affair with. So there will be either an under or overcompensation um, as a way of kind of trying to hide or deal with that. So compensation under or over is step 11. Step 12 is discovery. Now, discovery is fascinating to me um, because two reasons. One, it's inevitable. Um, it will ultimately, eventually, always be found out. Now, some people find out and immediately go into denial and pretend like they don't know. They may discover it same day. They may take them a few years to discover and allow themselves to realize something's really been going on. Occasionally, somebody will just confess and say, I need to tell you I've been doing something horrible. Or they will confess by saying, I've been in an affair, I've ended it, and you're going to be hearing from someone really soon because they're really mad at me and they're going to be calling you or emailing you or showing up at the house. Discovery happens lots of ways. It's interesting to me that in many of the cases I worked with, the person who was cheating found ways to be so stupid that it was inevitable that they would be caught. Now you could argue that they wanted to be caught or intended to be caught, but you will get caught. Whichever side of the equation you're on, there will be discovery. And discovery, um, step 12, is followed out by extreme anger and disengagement by the spouse that was cheated on. I cannot imagine any other response than disengagement, anger, and despair. And here's what is amazing to me, how often, let's, let's say I cheated on my wife and she discovered after X amount of time. It would be amazing to anyone and everyone if when that blew up, I was shocked about it. And yet that happens. So a wife will cheat on a husband and then be just kind of amazed at why, why is this such a big deal? I apologized. Or I explained that this is everybody's fault. Why? Of course, of course the person is angry, is hostile, is hurt, is resentful, probably wants you out of the house or the apartment or the condo. And will say things to you with good reason like, I'm never going to be able to trust you again. I'm never going to be able to forgive you again. Now, they can, over time, choose to forgive and choose to be on the path to restoring trust. But there is no other logical conclusion after the discovery of an affair than a blow up, than distance, than disengagement, than anger. So. If you think about these, you can, you can insert time gaps and time separations anywhere you want. I mean, you, you could increase or decrease any, any of these little steps into longer or shorter. My experience has been, working with couples, that the first eight stages are often many, many months. Not years, not weeks, but many, many months that require at least ongoing rationalization by the person that cheats, if not ongoing rationalization by everybody around the situation, by kids, by grandparents, by the spouse that got cheated on, 
by the other person's family, friends, by employers, where everyone's starting to get a sense that that's too, that's not normal, that's too close. Um, I was in an environment one time uh, at an organization far from here where uh, a man and a woman were presenting an idea um, at a conference and I can't get into more details other than that. A man and a woman were, were um, explaining something they were doing. And I came in late. And toward the end, I said, I said, how long have those two been married? And the person that knew them looked at me and goes, they're not married. And I said, oh, wow. I said, they really feel married. Well, it turns out the couple have been having an affair. And most people that were part of that organization, I was a visitor, most people had to have had a sense that they were too close. The way they talked, the way that they would touch each other's shoulders, it didn't look right, didn't feel right, didn't smell right. And that's often the case, that, that our loved ones, the other person's loved ones, our friends, our coworkers, our boss or our subordinates know something's up. But we're so worried, it's such, it's such a delicate conversation, most of the time it's not confronted. And when it is confronted, sometimes there's anger and denial. So there, there's no perfect way to do this, but I will say that most of the time other people know. So why are affairs so destructive? And what do we do about it? We'll pick that up in part two. So I certainly hope that you listen to part two. I think it'll be really helpful for you.